Welcome back. You're watching Stockwatch with me, Julieta Televi, this evening. And joining me to take your stock-related questions are Jean-Pierre Ster from Protea Capital Management and Grant Nader from Benguela Global Fund Managers. Please, could you send questions to uh, us via SMS, 41392, stockwatch at bdtv.co.za or on x slash Twitter using the hashtag Stockwatch. Jean-Pierre, Grant, good to see you both here this evening. Uh, Jean-Pierre, if I may start with you... Uh, uh, on, as far as the daily moves go, it wasn't a great day in the, the market today. Um, and I do think, however, it wasn't nothing terribly catastrophic. The rand was quite strong. Um, a lot of questions really about uh, the meltdown in the Middle East and how it hasn't actually affected stock markets. Um, in this week's um, edition of the Financial Mail, Dion Khos, who writes for us, as, as do you, Jean-Pierre, will argue that un until and unless Iran enters the fray, you're probably not going to see much fallout. Would you concur with that? Uh, yes, I would. Um, I would add to that that what you have seen <clears throat> on our local market is the gold mining shares increasing quite a bit over the past week. So there is some part of the market which is a bit nervous about the probability or possibility of Iran, for instance, entering the, the fray. And you saw the gold mines rise on the back of that. But because you haven't seen much other re response from equity markets, including the oil market, it does indicate that the general consensus is that with the, the U.S. there with a major presence with the uh, aircraft carriers in the Middle East, um, the other parties uh, surrounding Israel will probably decide to help off and that we will not have World War Three, which is a good thing. <laughs> so, uh, so yes, again, in markets, it's all about the future, all about probabilities. No one knows what's going to happen next, but... Um, it does seem like the probability at the moment is slanting towards this whole Middle Eastern situation relatively contained, uh, with only those who are a bit nervous buying the South African gold mining ships. Yeah. Until you start reading people like Neil Ferguson, etc., etc. Um, Grant, if you were maybe more than just a little nervous, is there anything that you would do in particular um, other than maybe just going into cash, which could be a catastrophic decision um, if that's what you were to decide? Uh, yeah, I think, you know, there are a few things you can do. What, what you need to remember, the unless it literally is World War Three, most businesses, most companies directly... Uh, companies' earnings are not directly affected by something like this, even though it may affect the oil price, it may affect the gold price. The currencies are likely to move quite significantly if this if this uh, escalates quite aggressively. So you could, you know, find some rent hedges, something old and boring like a British American tobacco. You can sleep at night. It's not going to be vulnerable to to the kind of shock waves. So the diversification type of thinking would help. Um, and, and just look for companies that are isolated in terms of their earnings. And if you think of a huge number of, if you even think of America, a vast amount of their earnings as a corporate earnings, especially outside of the top 50 or so, is earned by the internal consumer, the, the consumption spending internally. Yeah. So these companies don't disappear off the face of the earth, but it's a sentiment-driven panic for a lot of the part of it. Uh, and you've got to think about how will you, be calm in the face of that kind of sentiment. What's going to give you the ability to be calm? Maybe hold some gold shares as that risk of hedge, a little bit of a diversifier. Uh, some cash, I'd raise my cash balance a little bit. Um, maybe buy some bonds. You know, you you just look for those things that have, that have a different risk profile 
Um, and generally try not to do too much. I think mm. the mistake most people make in, in uh, whether we've seen, I've seen a number of these conflicts over the years, the mistake is you can't go massively into any direction because it's very hard to, to unwind when you're wrong or to know when you're wrong. Uh, it's The best thing is to do not too much uh, for the most part. Yeah. Yes, the do-nothing strategy is often, um, and it's the hardest yeah. one to do, actually, sometimes. Um, and actually, yes. it leads us to a question from a viewer who talks about investment uh, psychology. And you talked about diversification, because I did uh, mention this question before we went on air. And the viewer says, Wayne talks about diversification all the time. In fact, Wayne McCurry's favorite expression is, diversification is the only free lunch. What is, if there is, a psychological effect of diversification? Jean-Pierre, is it simply uh, being able to sleep more peacefully at night? I think that's a big part of it. It gives comfort. But um, one can also have over-diversification, which is effectively cold comfort. So just because you hold 20 or 30 or 40 stocks doesn't necessarily mean you have less risk than holding, say, less than 10 stocks, 7 or 8. Mm. You need to also consider the uh, risk factors that your individual companies that you own shares in are exposed to. And sometimes, even with a diversified portfolio, you can still have a concentration of risk. Um, that is quite often uh, the case where, let's say, you are diversified, but you're still overweight in a certain sector. So just because you hold um, 50 uh, real estate investment trusts doesn't mean that you've effectively diversified away from the property market. So uh, don't just think about naive diversification. Think about the risk factors your shares are exposed to. And then be wary of this over-diversification because the cold comfort you get is you think everything's okay, but if you have a very high number of stocks, you run the risk of not really monitoring them that closely. Yeah. And, um, and that is also another risk that you then find. So it, it's sort of like the, the Goldilocks principle. Where do you want to diversify a little bit, but not too much? Yes. Uh, and normally, I would say up to 20 stocks for a traditional investor that looks at the fundamentals uh, is a good level of diversification. And then there are other strategies, say more quantitative-based strategies, that can have hundreds of stocks because they make use of other types of um, investment processes. So, uh, so around, I think if you have more than 20, you maybe not sleep too well uh, at night. Yeah. Well, that was going to be my question, Jean-Pierre, uh, to Grant, which was, is there an ideal number of shares in a, in a personal portfolio? It's also bearing in mind that a lot of people's portfolios in which they directly invest are actually ETFs. Not, uh, you know, uh, it's a smaller number of people who have a, a direct share portfolio. And I suppose therein can also be a problem if you have too many ETFs or funds of funds that actually you're then exposed to thousands of shares. And I wonder what you make of that as well. Yes, uh, I mean, I think JP's point about having too many individual holdings, you, you don't really know what you've got and what you don't have, and you can't really make any decisions about what you have in, in a time of stress, a time of crisis. And I think the other thing to remember when you're diversified is you, you're getting away from the individual risk attached to individual companies, but you're not getting away from market risk. So you could have 100 ETFs if, if World War III or whatever, some significant event breaks out, Markets all tend to be highly correlated in, in high-stress events. Uh, and so they'll all come down. And But that's different from the transaction capital uh, or the EOH where you lose 80%, 90% of your capital. So yeah. that's what you get from the diversification is that even if you do have a company that disappears and goes under, 
you're still okay. You're never going to put all your capital at risk. And I think that's really important, especially if you're managing your own investments. Mm. Okay. All right. Sorry, Julieta, there yeah. is one more thing to add to this. And that is that in theory, um, one could say that if, if you could hold every single share that is listed, if you could hold, say, 20,000 shares, yeah. you are completely diversified. And that, that is potentially the best portfolio you can have because you will necessarily own the best performance. And anything less than that is a portfolio where you risk not owning the best performing shares, which are less than 1% of shares actually outperform over the long term. They drive the market over the long term. So um, there is a school of thought to say that there's never too much diversification, but that is a very passive strategy. And there's nothing wrong with it, but then there's no use in you analyzing underlying companies, underlying shares. Mm. If you follow that passive strategy, then you can just as well just buy the market, buy every ETF you can find, and don't watch Stockwatch because there's no reason <laughs> to do it. <laughs> exactly. We'd go out of business. I mean, you know, <laughs> our raison d'être would cease to exist. Can't do that to ourselves. Um, okay, well, moving on, there's a question on high dividend yielding stocks. So uh, the viewer says, when there is a fall in interest rates, when, hopefully, um, high growth stocks will be re-rated as their future cash flows become more valuable. What about high dividend stocks like British American Tobacco and Storage? Everything else being equal, will they also be re-rated as their dividend yield becomes more attractive compared to bond yields? Or is it merely a rising tide lifts all boats? Um, Grant, what do you think? I don't think it's an automatically linear relationship you can assume. But, and it also depends on how certain those dividends are. So obviously, a higher yield return relative to rates does look more attractive over time. So if, if rates fall by 3 or 4% and you're still getting 8% on British American tobacco, that investment becomes more interesting and more attractive. So there could be some re-rating there, but it's, there are no guarantees in life because it depends on the certainty of those cash flows, etc. But certainly it would be more attractive and it would make your portfolio more attractive as well if that was your income stream. Um, so... Yeah, I mean, I wouldn't, I wouldn't say it's, it's guaranteed, but it's logic assumes there would be more value in that income stream. Hmm. Jean-Pierre, your thoughts, or um, is the high dividend yielding, you know, if you looked at storage of British American tobacco, also a function of the price that you're paying for these companies? It is, uh, by definition, the lower price you pay, the higher is the dividend yield. Um, but in your example, where interest rates drop, that is good for all risk assets. So whether you have a high yielding, call it value stock, or a low yielding growth stock, it would benefit both, both. But your high yielding growth stock has got more of its value into the future. So it's more sensitive to interest rates than a high yielding stock, which has got more of its value closer to the present. And therefore, you would expect that the growth stock would actually benefit more from a drop in interest rates than a high-yielding stock would for the same drop because of this dynamic of your cash flows actually being closer to where we are today, um, and therefore it's not so sensitive. The technical term for it is the duration of your cash flows. The duration is higher for a high-growth stock, and therefore it's more sensitive to dropping interest rates versus a high-yielding uh, stock. Uh, the question, I suppose, is also when is this going to happen? Because I suppose the minute that uh, central banks worldwide start cutting interest rates, the markets are going to be ahead of that, right? They're going to predate that. Or is this the, the strange, volatile situation, the swampy situation we find ourselves now in? Everyone's 
desperately trying to time when exactly that is. Uh, uh, Grant. Yeah, I mean, I mean, that is what's happening. And it's not so much thinking about right now, people are thinking about when is the last hike as much as they're thinking about when is the cut, because from the point of the last hike, there is, you can look back in the history and see the average time from last hike to first cut. I think it's about seven months in the US and it's about five months globally. Okay. Uh, but of course, there's a wide variation between the length, the different, the different durations. That's an average, so it doesn't guarantee anything. But when there's that line of sight, uh, I would just say on the dividend conversation again that that shouldn't be the reason you're going, uh, you know, buying a dividend stock or not. You should, it should fit your income needs or your, your specific needs for that investment. Um, and that obviously will be a catalyst. And yes, by the time things, the market's decided it's, it's, it's ahead of the curve, it's going to be ahead of the curve. Sometimes you don't, you, you miss the boat. So the best thing to do is rather find a great company when you see it's at a good price, you buy it. And, you know, don't buy all of it at once necessarily. So we could see cuts within the next 6, 12 or 18 months. If you think that's a realistic outcome, don't wait until you're sure because, yes, you've missed it by then. Start buying now and average in over time and you'll, and you'll find as long as you're buying quality, you'll be okay. Yeah. Okay. Jean-Pierre, um, yeah, come tell us when we're all going to make money out of the interest rate cuts that are, are, are going to ensue. When we want dates, <laughs> we want quantities, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Reminds me of uh, James Maynard Kane who said, uh, "Investing is like the, the, a beauty contest, but you're not looking actually for the prettiest lady. You're looking to see who is everyone else going to think is the prettiest lady." <laughs> and that's similar to stocks. You don't buy stocks because you think interest rates are going to move. You need to anticipate that the market is going to think interest rates are going to move, and then you need to make your move based on that. The second derivative. So it's almost impossible, therefore, and that is why people have often said that you cannot be successful in market timing. So don't try to time the market, don't try to time the interest rate cycle. Just be aware that over time there will be high and low interest rates, periods. But as Grant said earlier, if you stick to quality companies, remember you've got a management team working for you every day, and they need to figure out what strategies they're going to follow yeah. to mitigate interest rate risk and all kinds of other risks. So, that is the best way to hold wealth of the long term, stick with wealth quality companies. Yeah, okay. Um, I don't know if either of you had, um, I mean, the, the news flow today was fairly muted. Uh, Pick and Pay did come out with a, a further trading update today. And I, I wonder if just on the basis alone of the headline for the trading update, the shares came off because it was talking about the impact that hyperinflation in Zimbabwe is going to have on the business. Um, and, Grant, and the shares were off 4%. Do you think that was maybe an overreaction or, or sort of justified or were there actually other factors there um, rather than this, this new, new trading update? Uh, and I'll be honest with you, Julieta, I missed that one. Um, okay. I didn't pick up that extra, extra update. But there are business that's under a lot of pressure and... It, you don't turn a ship that big around overnight. They've got a lot of work to be done. ShopRite's got a lot of positive momentum and they've got a lot of negative momentum. So that update is just fuel on the on an existing fire. Um, so, you know, I'm not surprised. I didn't see the content, but I don't think it changes the fundamental story. Zim is not the value driver in pick and pay anyway. So, mm. in my opinion. Yeah, I mean, it didn't seem to me that the range uh, of, you know, they, they expect to report a, a loss per share for the 26th um, a week to the 27th of August is, is greatly altered. Jean-Pierre, I don't know if you had a, a moment to look at it either. I did have a quick look, and as you say, 
I also didn't see anything new to what was previously out in the market. Um, I mean, hyperinflationary adjustments is also very technical. So it could be that they realized very late in compiling the results. Oops. Um, we probably need to refer to, to the hyperinflation, make people aware of the hyperinflation implication um, of, uh, of the uh, Zimbabwe consolidation. And that's what they did. But for me, there wasn't much extra news. I do think still that we can buy in a precarious position, a lot of debt on their balance sheet. So, you know, everyone's focusing on the HEPs, focusing on the income statement. I think tomorrow morning when they come out, uh, focus is probably going to shift to the balance sheet. Because I think that is the, the part of the financial statements that needs a little bit more attention. Yeah, of course. And it's the biggest Achilles heel for a company. And we have seen it time and time again, is that when you have too much debt, you either can't do the things that you want to do or you do sort of rash things that you shouldn't do in retrospect because you're not thinking with a clear head because you have this enormous debt burden looming over you. Um, is that also the worry for you both nodding <laughs> quite vigorously here? <laughs> yeah, okay. Yes. yes. Um, uh, all right, so, so th that's what we have to pay attention to. Although I also have to say retailers are, they're quite good at kind of, the balance sheet part of the the results are are not necessarily flagged by retailers. It's more you know the the, the income statements that, that that they push forward. So something to, to look out for. Um, I don't know if you guys have been following the the situation with Renogen. The stock has been all over the place. Um, there's been a lot of social media warring. I suppose you could call it that. Um, Grant, the share was up twelve percent today, and I wonder if that's genuine investor interest or if maybe there are short sellers in Renogen that were caught out um, you know the company kind of coming out to to defend mm. itself um, what do you think uh, I'm, I'm not close to this one I must be honest uh, uh, is it possible it's related to this um, hydrogen fuel cell project um, between Amplats and, and which obviously uh, Renogen will benefit from but between Amplats, BMW, um, and Sassel, but I don't know if that's related. I'm, I'm speculating. Okay. I'd rather, I, I think I, should, I shouldn't say much more than that. Okay. Jean-Pierre, um, no problem. I, I'm, not, and I'm not sure about this hydrogen fuel cell project, so I couldn't answer that either. Um, Jean-Pierre, do you have any sort of, uh, if, if not maybe actual insights or uh, maybe a philosophical insight to give to what is playing out now? Yeah, so I think firstly, the company didn't handle the criticism well. Um, I think when anyone criticizes the company, but they make sure of their facts and they feel they are certain of their facts and they ask questions which might be critical questions of a company, it's never a good idea to play the man rather than the ball. Um, secondly, they did try to address all the questions, but as I understand it, not all the questions were answered. Mm. And, um, and the main uh, uh, proponent of us, the person who's asking the questions, Mr. Silvier, has asked for a, a, a live one-on-one Q&A session with the, the CEO. And some people might think that's strange, but in the institutional market, there are often engagements with, say, four or five institutional investors around a table with the CEO and questions and answers being, being, uh, being asked. So uh, it would, I think it would really be good, actually, to have that type of session in a live environment where the questions can be asked and answered and that will allay a lot of fears because I think there is a lot of uncertainty mm. and until all the questions which seem like valid questions are answered will probably linger um, and the company needs to answer these questions because they're going to come to the market in the not too distant future to raise capital for the helium project and that means that um, they need to build confidence 
So, so far they haven't done a great job, but they can still save it, I think, by, by engaging more um, uh, authentically uh, with the questions that have yeah. Do you think, um, and, and sorry, this is maybe in, introducing the realm of conjecture, conjecture here, but if transaction capital, for example, uh, were to have been more upfront about things that already people were starting to raise in, in I guess, January this year after David Herbert's share sale, that might have put the company on a better footing. I don't know, Grant, or, or do, do you think that would have um, got ahead of the sell-off of, um, that took place in the market, say? No, I, I don't think so. I think okay. the the problem should have been flagged a lot sooner. Investors should have been made aware that there was there were troubles there, all the way back in October, November. Um, bef you know, things don't change as quickly as as they look to have changed. Between the date they reported the results, which ended 30th of September, they only reported I think in November, and the time then when they came to market with, um, you know, with the updates that were so negative. So no, I I think they were very far behind the curve and. Uh, yeah, I think there's a lot of questions that still need to be answered there. Mm. Yeah, okay. Um, we have a bit of time, so uh, it is maybe incumbent of me to let you have time to expand on your stock picks this evening, uh, about uh, three and a half minutes for, for until the end of the show. Um, Jean-Pierre, what takes your fancy in, in the global village that you trawl for investment ideas? So it's interesting you've given more uh, time than usual because mine is actually quite simple. It's a big <laughs> U.S. listed company, but it's a managed care company. So it's it's big, but what it does is relatively simple. It is effectively what we would think of as a medical aid insurer, but the government in the U.S. has got Medicare and Medicaid, two big funded programs, and these managed care providers like Senti, which is my stock pick tonight, um, are effectively the, the middlemen between the government and individual uh, um, patients of hospitals and of doctors. And because there are only a handful of these managed care providers, they have pricing power, they've got negotiating power, um, they can negotiate very successfully with hospitals and doctors and keeps the, keep the rates low, so very similar to the dynamic we have in South Africa as well with medical aids. But they can also invest in the actual hospitals and doctor groups. Mm. which is another avenue of profits. Um, and they can pocket some of the benefits of the savings they get rather than passing it on to the government. So these managed care providers are very profitable. Um, they're growing very nicely as the U.S. population gets older and therefore need to use um, uh, medical care more often. Um, so I do think that notwithstanding all the, uh, the positive news at the moment of the likes of Novo Nordisk and Eli Lee coming out with weight loss Derives uh, that people say would mean people will be a lot more healthier because it will suppress their their um, uh, urge for for fatty foods. Um, I do think that the use of medical services continue to increase as people get older. It might just be for different reasons. Maybe you break a few legs rather than uh, going for um, liposuction or something because of obesity. Um, and I think same team will benefit from these. Spend. So that's a a long way of actually telling a very simple story yeah. regarding. I mean, there's two things I have to pick up there, breaking a few legs. I mean, generally, people only get two in a lifetime. So that's a... And also, I imagine the, I imagine the American, the average American um, can't really like Centene too much, but an interesting pick nonetheless, Jean-Pierre. Uh, Grant, how about you? Uh, yeah, I just wanted to, if I may, we've got a minute, to touch on this um, health, this diabetes, diabetes uh, sorry, weight loss drug 
uh, revelation that is taking place. You're seeing some uh, sell-offs in some high-quality businesses that are getting. Everyone's assuming that the consumption of consumption of Coke or fizzy beverages is going to drop significantly, and those shares are being sold off dramatically. And if you think people are going to change their ways, um, then that's fine. But if not, there's I think you know some interesting opportunities that could be presenting themselves. But we mm. won't we won't dwell on that tonight. But it's okay. it's, it's amazing that. I think America, the entire country is going to change at, at, en masse. Yeah. So we'll see how that plays out. Yeah. No, it'd be very interesting. Um, so yeah, my stock don't pick write off is, <laughs> yeah, yeah. So so my stock pick is, I'm keeping it simple as well. I like Woolworths. And the reason is, is twofold. I think on a company level, um, they've done a lot of good things in the past 18 months under the new CEO. They've sold David Jones now. So the balance sheet is much cleaner. They've got plenty of cash. Uh, they're reinvesting quite nicely into the business. They're growing their margins. Um, you've got this core food business that still has a very strong moat and loyal client base, best in the industry margins. And then you've got this um, food and uh, fashion, beauty, and home, which they're now improving. They've sorted out their margins. They've, they've rationalized the lines. Uh, you see much better outcomes there, much less discounting. So in the core, they're doing good things in the business as a whole. Now you take a step back and you talk to that interest rate question you were talking about. I think we're in sort of peak pain. I think load shedding has peaked. I think interest yeah. rates are at or near the peak. If you're taking a 12-month to 18-month view, uh, I think you're going to get some defensiveness in the food section of Woolies, and then you're going to get some of that nice uptick if consumers see a better outlook, they start getting that relief. Even before the cut happens, just knowing there's a cut coming, yeah. maybe the cycle's peak, no more hikes. So you're getting a bit of uh, a number of different benefits that are going to come through uh, as an opportunity and in terms of catalysts. Uh, and you can sleep at night because you've got a nice core <laughs> underlying business. Yeah. And it's trading at a decent price. Okay. Peaceful sleeping so. seems the theme du jour. Okay. Grant, <laughs> Jean-Pierre, thank yeah. you very much for joining us this evening. Nice to chat to you both. Jean-Pierre Fester is from uh, Protea Capital Management and Grant Nader is from Benguela Global Fund Managers. Up next, the close. Stay with us. Thank <laughs> you.